welcome to this episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. My name is Jake Downs. I am the host of this show. I'm a former fourth grade teacher, instructional coach currently, and PhD candidate at Utah State University. I'm calling this hiatus episode number two because the show right now is technically on hiatus. About midway through my dissertation and needing to devote my time and energy towards that to make sure it, it gets done and it gets done right. Um, so traditionally, the format of the show has been where I interview uh, literacy scholars about research that they've done, specifically studies that have been published in peer-reviewed journals. However, there are two articles that have caught my eye in the last couple weeks that really helped probe a little bit about what I've been thinking about as I've been visiting classrooms and really thinking hard about what does good reading instruction look like. And I wanted to, I wanted to talk about them for a few minutes. And uh, the topic of both of them are questions, specifically the role of questions in literacy instruction, how we ask questions in literacy instruction, and then begging the question of, can we do questions a little bit better? You and I both know that question asking, it is the, the, the tried and true method for reading comprehension or, or, or for sort of driving a conversation along in, in any sort of instructional context. Just because it's it's something that's always been done doesn't necessarily mean that, that we might be doing it the best way that we possibly can. And so two articles that uh, one was published in the, in the Reading Teacher, uh, I want to say maybe August or, or maybe early September, and then the other one was, was published in the Journal of uh, Adult and Adolescent Literacy uh, just a few weeks ago, mid-October probably was when it was published. The first one is, is by... The first one is by Dr. Tricia Zucker, who is an associate professor uh, in the Children's Learning Institute at the University of Texas Health Science Center, and she wrote that with, uh, with three other colleagues. And the other article is written by Elizabeth A. Stevens, who's an assistant professor in the College of Education and Human Development at Georgia State University, and she wrote that with, with other colleagues from the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk. And... The Meadow Center is a resource that as I've gone through my, my doc program, I've really grown a lot of respect for because uh, it's a center that works really hard to incorporate what we know about research, about what, what we can do to best support students, but has a very careful eye towards what works in practice, how to, how to make these things pragmatic. So what I want to do is, is just give a, an overview of what both of these uh, pieces of scholarship talk about and then provide my own two, two cents on it. So the first one I want to focus on is the Zucker article from the reading teacher. And both these articles focus on, they're both focusing on questions, but they're doing it with sort of two different populations, and they take two different approaches to it. This first article, the title of it is, Asking Questions is Just the First Step, Using Upward and Downward Scaffolds. And they're specifically talking about teaching kindergarten or, or even, you know, even younger grades. So in this first article with, with Dr. Zucker and colleagues, the title really is saying it all, where they're saying that asking questions is just the first step. So they're really viewing in this article of questions as a probe, and then based on the answer the teacher receives from that probe, the teacher can provide an upward scaffold, a follow-up prompt that's more complicated, or a downward scaffold of a more simple prompt to help prompt the student learning. And all of that's depending on the student response. And so part of that is, is they, they recommend a, a serve and return method. And I, I like that language 
it's it's an oral language term. If you go back and listen to the episode 21 or 22 that we did with Dr. Snow, it was the last one before the hiatus. She talks about this, this serve and return method uh, of developing oral language. And then in this case, Dr. Zucker and colleagues have adapted it to, to supporting reading comprehension. They, they focus on this strive for five serve and return method. And it opens with, uh, you know, with, with the teachers reading an informational text. And, and remember, these are younger grades, so maybe kindergarten, first, second. And so the, the teacher's doing a read aloud with students, and we could say it's an informational text just, just for conversation's sake. And as the teacher's going through, the teacher can pause and ask an initial open-ended question, and then the student can respond to that question. And based on that student's response, the, the teacher then decides whether to scaffold up with something more complex or scaffold down with, with something a little bit more basic. Uh, and then after that, the, the student responds again, and then the teacher provides more uh, explanation on the topic. Based on that, the, the, strife, the, the idea behind their strive for five is that a student is getting five interactions with the prompt in order to help learn the content of that, of that story in order to comprehend it a little bit better. They offer a couple other techniques that can be done with it. So they, they recommend that you could do a partner talk um, before asking the question, and that when you ask the question, then, then that could be an equity stick or, or you're pulling a popsicle stick for a cold call in order to elicit a student response. Um, but that idea of the question not being just a question for question's sake, or the question not just being um, sort of assessing, but it's a question of how do I use this question to drive forward my instruction based on the student response. So when they say asking question is, is just the first step, the, these authors are really meaning it. That's just step one, and then you still have four other steps after that to help scaffold and support student learning. So I, I really liked that article by, by Dr. Zucker and colleagues and the reading teacher. Uh, let me just do a brief synopsis of the other article. The other article is, uh, again, Elizabeth A. Stevens with, with colleagues from the, the Meadows Center. And they are, their population is different than the other ones. Remember that first one was, was kindergarten students. And, and even though it was kindergarten, I, I, that same idea I think is applicable, you know, certainly in the elementary grades where, where sort of my expertise is, but I think a good case could be made for that, that that, that could be used, um, you know, K-12 across content areas. But specifically with uh, Dr. Stevens's article is they're thinking about middle school teachers in the content areas. So thinking about a middle school science teacher or a middle school social studies teacher. And part of what's, what's come with the Common Core is uh, an increased expectation that students are reading complex texts and that they are able to construct knowledge from those texts so they can, they can learn from reading those complex texts and that they're able to integrate knowledge across multiple different texts to engage in text-based discussions. And that's a very high standard that the Common Core state standards have set for us. And, and sort of along with that has come this idea of, of disciplinary literacy sort of thinking about texts, if you're in the social studies, think about thinking about texts in the way that a, a social scientist might, or if you're, you know, in more of the hard sciences, you know, chemistry or biology, thinking about texts in the way that a, uh, an empirical scientist might think about it. And uh, with that, they're, they're saying that, you know, some of these, some teachers might struggle with um, supporting their students in, in complex texts 
because maybe these teachers haven't seen themselves as a literacy teacher before. They've, they've seen themselves as a social studies teacher, as a science teacher. And so the purpose of this article is to um, perhaps provide some thinking and support for teachers in the content areas of how they can uh, help their students generate knowledge from, from texts. And their method from doing it, and, and I like what I, I like the format that they do it in, but but they're they're actually teaching students to ask their own questions. Um, and so part of their, their steps with that is is having the students read a text carefully and then occasionally or frequently pause where and then the students locate important information and they can they can reread that to sort of get a little bit deeper understanding of the gist. And then after that, they take that information and flip it, and they use that term flip to, to flip it into a question. And with that, they suggest you can do it in, in pairs or in small groups, and that the teacher can sort of scaffold these regular intervals to pause at. Uh, but with that, teaching the students to ask two types of questions. The first type of question would be a specific question. So a specific question is one that can be a little bit more concrete. It's one that can be answered in a specific single spot of the text. And another one well, would be a wide question, one that's found in multiple places or, or one that's sort of an, an overarching um, theme or concept that's, that's built up across the text. And, and obviously, you know, wide questions are going to be a little bit more complicated for students to uh, be able to generate than specific questions. But that idea of we're going to let the students generate their own questions, but it's going to be very text-based. It's going to be them looking at and honing in on specific details and using that knowledge to flip, uh, flip it into, into a question to give it a little bit higher order thinking there. Um, the big question that they tackle in this article, and actually the bulk of the article is, is spent doing this, but they address this is a great idea but how do you successfully implement it in the classroom? In other words, how do we make this uh, a high-impact high impact instruction and not just sort of another reading activity like any other, you know, sort of sleepy worksheet, late, you know, reading activity that's out there? And, and they model, uh, or they present within the article, um, you know, a really excellent way that, that follows... Um, some very clear instruction and then shifting or gradually releasing the responsibility onto students. They discuss that in order to do this, it's, it's not something we can just sort of place in students' laps and, and expect them to be proficient at the first time, that the teacher needs to prepare and, and develop and then deliver a model lesson where the teacher is going through a text that the students might be going through and pulling out questions and, and modeling through, uh, through Think Aloud why they are selecting the question they're questioning and why they're crafting it in a certain way they're crafting it. Uh, and then specifically doing think aloud around how to do that with specific questions and how to do it with wide questions. And then um, after that, integrating student opportunities to practice this. And so by the teacher providing a, a high quality model and then allowing the students to sort of mimic that high quality model, uh, we're able to increase the, the academic rigor of that activity. As you can see, two very different age levels, two uh, sort of very different uh, approaches where the kindergarten is, is focused on ELA instruction with, with kindergartners comprehension, uh, but then the you know middle school, uh, obviously much more capable readers, supporting the readers to read texts um, in, in partners or small groups and then generate their own questions. 
Um, but but despite this, they they both have. Um, I think I think both those approaches really have much more applicability than than sort of where they're presented at. Uh, but they have a couple major takeaways, and one of that one of those major takeaways is that they both implicitly indicate that just asking a question is is not enough. That asking a question isn't drive and push instruction. Students are not likely to improve significantly in, in their, their content or reading skill just by the teacher asking a question. It's, it's how we are using questions as teachers that really matters. It's are we using our questions to scaffold our learners or are we just sort of passing out questions into the classroom and, and hoping something works? Um, so the Common Core State Standards, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, they, we, it expects our students to be able to construct knowledge from text, to learn new things, and to do that from multiple texts. Uh, so how do, how do we do that? Um, looking a little bit deeper, Zucker and colleagues, right, right from the outset, they state that questions have to be guided through cognitive scaffolds. And they, they then to poll in colleagues 2010 where they say, cognitive scaffolding strategies are explanations, hints, models, or questions teachers use to organize student thinking or to simplify a task. And I like those two qualifiers. It's basically what the teacher does to help organize student thinking or to simplify um, a task. And so through their lens, asking question is just the first step. And it's the answer the student provides based off that question that allows the teacher to provide those scaffolds that determine the next four steps after that. And that concept of providing cognitive scaffolding for the questions is, is very nicely complemented in the, the Stevens and colleagues piece because their piece very clearly places the, the, the impetus of question generation not on the teacher but actually on, on the students, where it's the students that are generating the questions. But this, is, this next part is, is critical. It, it, they're not presenting it as a, okay, here's your assignment, go to work generate your questions, they're really presenting it as a gradual release process of the teacher starting with a clear purpose for learning and then through modeling and think loud, um, providing instruction on how to ask the right types of questions, which are going to help target the learning, the learning objective, and throughout engaging students in that process and then allowing students time to try it out. And then of course we, we can assume that we can, the teacher can provide guided practice and support for students throughout this process once the students are, are doing it independently uh, you know, or, or in partners or small groups. Both of these caught my attention because they indicate that a question asking in and of itself is not instruction. Questions are a huge part of what we do as literacy teachers, but we have to incorporate it with, with scaffolding in order to, to turn our questions into instruction and not just um, you know, formative assessments or probes that we, we, we take the information from those questions in order to plan our next move with, with our instruction. For this next chunk, I just want to provide a few thoughts of what I would perhaps suggest in addition to these articles that have, have been published. And, you know, pieces have specific foci and there's, you know, there, there's word limitations. And, and so it's, it's impossible for these authors to include everything. And so I want to acknowledge that, that by me, adding suggestions, it's in, it's in no way meant to undermine what they've already published because I think both of these articles are, are very strong additions to what we, uh, how we think about using questions effectively. But I do have a few thoughts that I might suggest. 
The first one, if we talk about the Zucker piece, they're they're the ones that were the serve and return, uh, scaffold up, scaffold down questions with kindergartners. And I really like the serve and return question scaffolding. Uh, it's great for that younger grade level because it's giving it can give some really rich oral language support. Um, in addition to modeling the thinking that um, excellent readers do, so those kindergartners can see. My paradigm when I when I go into classrooms and I look at instruction is I'm I'm very concerned with high engagement activities or or high engagement instruction or instruction where we somehow can include every single student to participate in the instruction and that we're doing that multiple times per minute and along with that of course how do we scaffold those things for all learners. So what the authors are suggesting in the, in the Zucker piece is sort of an individual serve and return model where the teacher asks a question and then an individual student answers. And then based on that, the teacher sort of scaffolds up or scaffolds down and then returns the question back to that individual student. I love the, the scaffolding and the approach they take to it, but I, I, I see that practice. And I, I think that in that case, we have one student that is actively participating in instruction, but we don't have a guarantee that the other 19 or, or 25 kindergartners are also being included with instruction in, in those moments. And so my thought around there is how can we take this, this you know, very well thought out practice and, and just up the engagement on it a little bit? In the piece, they state that a, a partner talk could be optional before asking each question. And, and I would recommend perhaps thinking about tweaking that and saying that the majority of the time that a partner talk should be included before the, the random call. And, and for two reasons. The first reason is that by engaging in the partner talk before having an individual student respond, you're giving every student an opportunity to engage with the content, and specifically engage with the content through oral language. Um, the more miles of language we, we can get out of our students, especially in those younger grades, uh, I think the better off we are, especially if the teacher is, is, is modeling and providing sentence stems for, for complex syntax. If you do it right, you know, a, a sentence stem at the, you know, to sort of get the partner talk going and then with a few target words to uh, sort of scaffold their responses, it's providing every student an opportunity to engage with that content before everyone hears from a single student. And number two, thinking about doing a partner talk before uh, pulling the equity stick, is that it's going to help scaffold the coming prompt for the student whose who's popsicle stick you're going to draw. So that way it's, it's a little bit you know, warmer of a cold call, so to speak, that by having the partner talk before the individual cold call, you're giving them even a little bit more scaffolding before you hear from an individual student. And I'm always, uh, you know, I'm always a proponent of we want to set our students up for success of whatever the next step in that gradual release is. If we're shifting from an I do to a we do. We want to set our students up for success in the we do from a we do to a y'all do from a y'all do to a, a you do. And so I, I hesitate of, of sort of sliding through that gradual release too fast because I want to make sure we're setting our students up for success. At, at the next point. So they offer, they offer that as an optional piece, but I would recommend really trying that out before the cold call every single time. And I think with just a few minor tweaks, you know, I could see this very easily working in a fourth or a fifth or a sixth grade classroom. Um, and perhaps it could really re lead to some really rich discussion and conversation. With the uh, Stevens Middle School piece, remember they were the ones that uh, were having the students generate questions um, wide questions and narrow questions based off of specific parts they've read in a text. I might recommend with them 
extending the guided practice just a little bit before turning it over to the students. The, the model they provide, and again, they spend the bulk of their article really explaining how to model it and how to, how to show students to pick out wide and narrow questions. And uh, they really do a very nice job of laying out different situations. But uh, I, wonder if, if, I wonder if the task responsibility could be shifted over just a little bit slower to the students, that instead of just the teacher doing a model lesson one day and then the students working on it the next day, I wonder if there could be another sort of middle lesson or at least part of a lesson where that responsibility of, of generating questions is shared by the, the teacher and by the students. And so just sort of thinking aloud here of, of one way that could look is, is perhaps, you know, the next day in, in the same text as the model lesson, the students could, could reread the text in partners just to recall the gist and refamiliarize themselves with the text. And then the teacher could walk them through the text again, but targeting different parts of the text. And the teacher stopping and, and sort of modeling a little bit of the thinking, but then letting partners generate the actual question. And then I guess even integrating uh, the, the Zucker pieces, and they could do partners and then cold call. And then based on that, scaffold up or scaffold down. Um, but, but letting the partners generate the actual questions and then seeing what one partnership came up with. And then perhaps by repeating that process a few times within the same text, it, it might be a good indicator of the student's proficiency with question generating before the teacher has to gradually release them to that independent stage and, and letting the students uh, work on it in, in their pairs or, or small groups. Um, so, and I, and I haven't worked extensively with middle school populations, so I will definitely defer to their expertise in the article. But um, what I know about even with fifth or sixth graders, I think a, a, a middle day of, of that really shared responsibility of letting the teacher sort of initiate the, the, the process with the text, but then having this, the partnerships or, or, or small groups generate the actual question could provide a really nice transition before students are expected to do it independently. I tend to think that it's always easier to remove a scaffold than it is to implement one. And especially, you know, if, if this could be a really high yield sort of a, a activity, uh, instructional routine in a classroom, that it, it might be worth it to take an extra day in the beginning to make sure you're getting it right. And then throughout the rest of the semester or the trimester, um, it could be one that, that you pull out fairly regularly and, and you don't really have to scaffold your students at that point. They're, they're ready to run with it. So thank you. Those are some of my thoughts around question generating. Again, those were both great articles. The Zucker piece is actually available. Um, it's, it's online open access, so I'll provide a link for that. And the, the Stevens article links to several resources, and I'll make sure to post links for those so you can check out more. Just to wrap up, I feel strongly that a question in and of itself is, is not instruction. A question is assessment. It's a probe. It's meant to uh, elicit your student's level of thinking. And, and there are times when it is just an independent, you do, it's an assessment, and that's all we need. However, the vast majority of the time, we're using questions in an attempt to instruct, in an attempt to achieve some learning objective or learning outcome. And so in those cases, we should absolutely be delivering scaffolding after after, we, we, after we, we deliver a question, we need to provide scaffolding. So the amount of scaffolding then that we deliver after a question 
is really a matter of our, our students' proficiency and the learning target. Those two things determine how we respond to our question, whether we scaffold up or whether we scaffold down. And uh, sometimes you might be asking a question and you provide some really rich modeling and really rich think aloud of, of how to answer that question before re-asking the exact same question to your students. That would be some really heavy type scaffolding. But other times on the far end of the spectrum, you, you might ask a question and then use some think time and elicit a, a written response. Uh, there's, there's sort of a big wide world between those two ends and it's not that one is good and the other is bad. It's that as an expert teacher, when are you going to use each one? When are you going to use extra heavy scaffolding after a question? And when are you going to use light scaffolding after a question? If you're aware of your learning targets and your, your student's proficiency, I, I trust your expertise to be able to determine how much scaffolding you need to give for those question asking. Scaffolding is great. There's a big wide world out there. But, but in the end, our, our questions should be used to drive our instruction, not to replace it. That's all I had for this episode, hiatus episode two of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I really appreciate your time listening to the podcast. I'll be doing more hiatus episodes um, just when things I want to talk about that I, I can kind of carve out some time to talk about, I will. Uh, but I am itching to get back to talking with, with real experts uh, and, and enlisting their thoughts on how we can think about reading instruction better and, and do it better. So until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.